Welcome to Virtual Student Experiences, where we inspire students to aspire. For more information, please check out our website at www.virtualstudentexperiences.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our first Virtual Experiences Career Spotlight. If you're new to our program, Virtual Student Experiences is a pro bono initiative spearheaded for students by students. The goal of the VSC is to give students around the world an opportunity to hear from professionals in their career industry of interest in a friendly and casual setting. For students that know what they want to do, the role of the VSC is to encourage, allow, and connect those students with professionals. Through VSC, students are given the chance to decide if their career of choice fits their personality, skills, and overall interests. For students who are ambivalent about their future, the role of the VSC is to help them not only explore but discover different career paths and options. Um, so I just want to go over some housekeeping things before we get started, so hang on tight. Firstly, I'm going to be asking our guest professional that I will introduce in a second, a series of base, base knowledge questions so that you guys can get a good idea of who he is and what he does. Um, if at any time you guys have a question that you think of, feel free to post it in the Q&A module and we'll try to get to it in the end. Um, with that being said, I want, you, I want to introduce you guys to our first guest professional, Mr. Luke Tucker. Uh, Mr. Tucker began his professional career in Hawaii at a local retail commercial bank as an analyst and then helped to build a, a position for social media marketing. He then left the bank to help launch a startup under the mentorship of Hank Rogers, who was the founder of the online game Tetris. He then worked on assisting a series of early stage startups into developing companies. Um, and a few years later, he moved out to California and started working at HackerOne as their director of content strategy. He then worked his way up to where he is now as a senior director of marketing and community. So we're honored to have, us, have you here with us today. Uh, thank you for joining us, Mr. Tucker. Thank you, buddy. Awesome, so just to start, um, first question, when you were in college, did you know that you wanted to take up a career in marketing? And when I was in college, so, I studied international business. And the reason I, I actually went to high school in where I live now in the area in Idaho. And um, I, want, I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. So that's a really quick answer to the question. Uh, but I knew I wanted to go somewhere new um, outside of Idaho. I wanted to go somewhere warm, culturally diverse. I wanted to um, learn more about business and different cultures. And so that's what drove me to Hawaii and Hawaii Pacific University. And um, graduated with a degree in international business. And um, didn't really fall into the marketing side for years later, actually. It's probably the first part of my career, as you already mentioned. I uh, started in finance. So I went, um, I still didn't know when I graduated what the heck I wanted to do. Um, but my family was in banking. And so I was like, well, I'll go, I'll go be an underwriter, commercial banking. So I wanted to learn more about different types of businesses. So when you underwrite loans at a bank, you got to analyze the cash flow statements. You got to speak the language of business and understand some accounting. You got to figure out the marketing sides. Like, hey, is this you know, is this business going to do well? Are they like, what's it historically? What's it forecasted out? What's my assumptions of the economic model and cash flow for, for a bank cash flow is king. So what's our debt service coverage ratio? That's what an underwriter and analyst has to dive into all the five C's of credit and things. So I really cut my teeth learning about business, which drove me to passion areas, which was like, I'm really good at this side. And I enjoy the marketing element more than I enjoy the really like nitty gritty of the finance, but I love what it would tell me, but I enjoyed the process more on the creative side. So that kind of like drove me later in the career. It was a long discovery. I did not know right away. So it's totally okay to not know. Just uh, be busy, keep an open mind, optimize for learning and you'll find your way. Awesome. And so from college, what would you say was the most valuable lesson or piece of knowledge that you consistently used on your path to get to where you are today? The most valuable lesson, I think I actually alluded to it at the end of my little monologue, um, it's learning and, and kind of having a natural curiosity. It's, it's the element of, um, I, I can't remember who said the quote, but you basically, you, you almost like you make your own luck. Actually, I do remember now. I believe that's uh, our friend Han Solo from Star Wars. But he's a wise sage and philosopher. But um, you got to, in order to have luck, you put yourself in the position of, working hard. You put yourself in the position of, I'm here to learn and have humility. So I was fortunate to 
when I cho- after I went when I worked at the bank initially, I got into what they call a management associate program, and so it was kind of like the future leaders of the bank, uh, and that was through the help of of just networking contacts. I was busy doing things like you guys are doing with the uh, student entrepreneurs group, so it started out earlier because I was part of a students and free enterprise. I was a uh, president of a club, and we just did business activities. I didn't know what I wanted to do, so you just stay active, you stay hungry, uh, and you l- learn as you go, and you continue to improve and kind of find your way. So that's my best advice is um, work hard and, and optimize for learning. Um, and while you meet people, don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to say, I would love to be able to grab coffee. Can I learn more about um, you know, your work or your approach to, to business? A lot of the things that people watching here um, are already getting, you know, you're, you're doing these things right. Uh, buddy, you and I were talking a bit before we jumped on live about uh, your own approach in interviewing dozens of professionals in an area that you're interested in, in finance and, and investment banking and business or what, whatever that might be. So uh, there's different levels of investment you can make, but the relationships you're going to develop along the way come through your hard work, come through your natural curiosity, your humility, and, um, and your desire to always keep learning. At HackerOne, we, uh, we identify the term hackers as anyone has a who creatively overcomes limitations. So hackers by, by nature are curious. They're, you know, they have an inquisitive side to them. I want to figure out how this thing works. I want to reverse engineer it to break down its pieces and then I'm going to rebuild it, but I'm going to rebuild it better with this new thing. You know, you think of like, you can hack business, you, you know, the term life hacker or growth hacker is a, is a Silicon Valley, you know, term that talks about marketing and you know, how do you growth hack your business? And it sounds super sexy and fun and, and it is, but the, the recipe isn't certain, like always magic. Um, so learning, um, optimizing for relationships, investing in that, uh, having that self-awareness and humility in yourself, uh, to always ask questions if you don't know the answer. And, um, as long as you don't ask the same question, the same five times in a row, then you're good. Yeah. Um, so in that last piece there, you mentioned networking is really important. So how have, how have you really utilized networking to further yourself in your career? I'm trying to think of some good stories. And a lot of the different steps you mentioned along my path um, really came from the networking side. So I'll even go back to the students uh, in free enterprise when I was at HPU. Uh, I was part of the club. And this is the luck plus relationship side. So I'll kind of tie those two points together. The luck side was there was a... Uh, uh, SIFE club, they call it Students and Free Enterprise Club based in uh, California in Chico. And they randomly reached out and said, hey, we want to do this business co-project with your club because we're going to come to Hawaii. And we looked up these guys online called Greater Good Radio and we, we contacted this guy, Evan Leon. And from there, I met Evan, your dad, in the Alamona Shopping Center lunch, old uh, lunch area. And we did a project together. And then from there, I interned for him. And then from there, he connected me with the bank uh, VPs that got me my first job. And that's networking. That's just a really simple story of you're lucky, but then you also take advantage of it. You recognize, um, you know, people that are network of networks. Um, they under, they know a lot of people and you develop friendships and you, you add value into that, you know? Um, so that's a great example there. And then the other thing is just going from the bank to the startup area. It was friends of mine who I got involved in a startup weekend project and we ended up placing in the top three. But that was a side thing I did while I was at the bank because I was interested. So I just, I had friends that were into it. They got into the first, first cohort of uh, Blue Startups. So it's crazy to think Blue Startups is, sheesh, I don't know how many cohorts they've had now, but uh, this was probably 2010, 11. Trying to think my timing, yeah, around there, 2011, maybe 2012 at the latest. Um, they went through the first cohort and, um, they connected me with people. They're like, Hey, they're doing this thing called the wildcard team. You should apply. They're taking Hank Rogers is going to pitch you a couple ideas for startup ideas that he's had forever. He just needs a team. And so we put together the team and I applied and we got in and the rest is history in terms of after that. And I can go down the line, each of those steps. Like I got the connection to hacker one because of Hawaii connections. We got named Donovan K. Aloha, who's a VC that mm-hmm. splits his time between San Francisco and Hawaii. Uh, he connected me with a guy who does demand gen at a certain B2B uh, startup based in Oakland. I got a contract there for them. The VP went to HackerOne and he took me with him. It all comes back to the referral networking. I, I can't say enough about it.
Huh, cool. Um, so switching over to your career, can you tell us more about like what it was like to uh, be a social media specialist in a time where social media was, was developing? Yeah, so back in, um, I've got to get my, my time zones correct. It was about 2008, 2009, 2009 um, coming into 2010. So if you remember even the time in the world, 2007 was a major financial crisis. 2008, the world was hit really hard. And so that was, you know, all hair on fire. That was at the bank, Central Pacific Bank, where I worked at the time. We, you know, didn't know if we were going to survive uh, that, uh, that crisis, but uh, the, we were able to come out of it. And, and I came out of it with my underwriting experience. And we, I worked in a special assets area, which is all the crappy loans, which at the time, there was a lot of them. Um, and... Then we had a new chief information officer come in and I started doing projects. I just had enough favor in the bank that I was able to, to work together. And I, I wanted to go into tech. I wanted to do technology. And so my idea was to kind of de-risk my foray into technology by getting a paycheck to kind of be an intrapreneur and, and test out some of these ideas. So I wrote my own job description. I pitched probably like five or six different ideas. I remember one was called the Urban Honolulu Innovation Center. And I want to do this like downtown, uh, um, basically what you see today with like the, uh, uh, the hot desks and, and the co-working spaces and everything. And I wanted the bank to invest in. We would invest, like it was kind of a hybrid model. Um, got turned down to that and a number of things, probably for the best. And um, came up with this, I was like, I'm going to be a mobile banking and social media strategist. So it wasn't just the social side. Because uh, I actually had, I did not sit under the marketing department. I was under a completely different division, uh, what they called electronic channel management. And so the main role that I had was to find the right vendor that could do a mobile app for our customers. Because we didn't have anything mobile, nothing. Uh, this, the site wasn't even optimized for the mobile devices. But I kept looking at, I got access to Google Analytic traffic and I was measuring like, look, every month your mobile traffic is going up and up and up and up compared to your total on your online banking. And here's the requests from customers for it. Here's our competitors that are doing similar things. And so it was mobile banking and social. Um, and I had to do a lot of internal selling that way. One of the best wins that I did have on the social side was we weren't successful in really rolling out like this big, beautiful social media experience. Like it just, we were a very conservative culture at CPB. And it wasn't going to happen. But what I realized was going to be necessary is working with our chief legal officer to put together a social media policy for employees because we got to be able to kind of tell people what they can and can't do, what they should and shouldn't do in the realm of where does our employee policy stop and go in this new normal? Um, and so that's where social media, I worked closely with our marketing team, but at the end of the day, it didn't come into like I was managing, I wasn't managing social accounts. I wasn't publishing a lot of material like when people think of social today it's like oh you were a social strategist this is what you did at the bank it actually was very little of that i was doing a lot of internal pitching and selling to be able to get them to to open up and be and, and own the conversation on twitter and, and be more proactive and i wanted to kind of be the tip of the spear but it ended up being a hybrid of the mobile and social side uh and so we were able to successfully launch the mobile platform it didn't have all the bells and whistles i wanted but it had the basics um, and we started from there. Uh, whenever you roll things like that out at a company, so much of the work is internal training. So especially in a, in a retail branch environment, you got tellers that are, you know, basically the ones that are front facing, customer facing. But if you came in and you were talking about things like they got to be able to at least somewhat articulate what the mobile app can and can't do and why it's better than someone else's across the street or, or where they can do things. So we had to do a lot of training. Um, and, um, so that kind of like adds a little bit more color to the why social or, or why not. But the work that I did kind of having to present the argument um, really goes a long way. And I'll use a, an anecdote that I've heard. Uh, I don't know if this is Jeff Bezos thing, but at Amazon, when, you, when they want to launch a new product, they essentially write the press release first. They try and go through and think everything through because at a press release, you got to distill down in a, in a page or so basically the value propositions for why it's good for your company, why it's good for the market or whatever. And so it's a good, good mental exercise to like force yourself to imagine, to act as if it's published and it's going to be produced and it's, we're going to launch this or whatever. And um, that was like a, a good thing to think through from the social media policy and social media um, presentation was I really had to 
do a lot of work and research because not much was out there. There wasn't great examples, um, but I convinced them to pay for me to go to a banking conference. So I went to uh, Retail Innovation Banking Center, Chicago, took a bunch of notes. It was a fun thing for me at the time because I'm like, oh, it's my first real business trip. Like first, you know, flying from Hawaii to Chicago and I learned a ton, took back my learnings and um, I'm kind of like, that was part of the cocktail of essentially being able to have the, the courage of your convictions to say, I believe this is going to be valuable for, for, our, for our business. Here's the data. So I can't just come as a marketer and say, here's these really, really creative ideas. I had to execute. So you got to show that you can operationally control something and have project management. You got to know internal politics and have enough relational capital to get things done. Uh, that doesn't just happen overnight. You got to build that over time, especially for something in a conservative culture. But at the end of the day, they were looking for exactly that from their management associates, the people that are the future leaders of the bank. And I'm, you know, speaking to you, buddy, Kainoa, anybody else listening. In this time, especially with COVID-19, there is going to be more change in the next two years than we've seen in the last 20 years. This is the opportunity for entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, you, get, you should read a guy named Tomas Tungas at Redpoint. He's a venture capitalist. And he essentially says a similar quote of this, which is, there's going to be so much explosion of innovation and new things that are happening over the next couple of years. This is arbitrage opportunity, speaking in a finance language. This is where you can find that no one's thought about this before. This is my angle. This is uh, how I'm going to innovate. Uh, so that's a wonderful opportunity, even though it's tough to go into a workforce that maybe they're not hiring as many traditional roles. Do what I did in some ways without that external like or without the internal relational capital, essentially present some new things of how you're going to add value because you're seeing it from a completely new lens. No one has experienced a pandemic in their lifetime such as this that's impacting our lives. Um, and so I encourage everybody to take advantage of that. Don't be, uh, don't be shy that um, the youth and your lack of experience is actually valuable to companies today. Hmm. Yeah, so in that, in that last piece that you talked a bit about uh, mobile banking, and so can you tell me like what it was like developing a platform like that at a real bank um, that mm -hmm. really helped to grow the multi-billion dollar fintech and mobile banking industries that they are today? Yeah, so I, I kind of, um, I referenced the, the, the mobile app experience. So companies like Central Pacific Bank, they purchase white label software. And what that essentially means is CPB does not have the technical talent to build a beautiful mobile app. And nor should they invest in that, honestly. They work with the fintech vendors that can, that can pipe into their core platform. So there's a company called Fiserv that runs a huge percentage of the market for commercial banks, community banks like CPB and others that are similar, assets in the range of 5 billion, 10 billion, 50 billion, that... Um, you know, there are shops that aren't going to invest in a huge, um, innovative, technological, they're, they're, we're not going to be first, they're going to be the late majority adopters uh, for anything. And uh, so when we're purchasing that technology, a lot of it was essentially analyzing, well, what works in our current tech stack? And what vendor can meet all the security protocols, but that gives me enough of that white label tweaking that I can throw my logo on there and I can give an experience that looks and feels pretty good. So from a user side, from a consumer side, it wouldn't really matter if this, um, if this was built or home-baked by my bank or not, as long as the, it does the minimum things that I wanted to. So we had to do enough market research and understanding of our, of our customers to know, okay, they, they want bill pay on their phone. They want to be able to check their balance. Like you wouldn't believe the percentage of traffic to the site and the, the amount of times people check their bank balances. It's insane. Just so they come in, it's like, oh yeah, still there. Okay, it's still there do that like you'd look at people that like this smile curve almost of you know they either never look at it all or they look at it like 30 times in a week like it's fascinating to just see human nature um but we did not home bake the technology we have to go to an external vendor that meets the criteria that fits within can they integrate with the core fiserv platform can they integrate with my online banking vendor um so that it's not a fragmented experience like that's got to be the worst right as a uh, you see that all the time today too, still, and you'll still still be the case for a long time to come because late adopters in technology, 
it's much easier for me to maybe spin up a new mobile experience app that can be super elegant and beautiful, but if it, it's not going to pipe into the core platform. So we had to launch uh, one of the big areas I was working on was mobile remote deposit capture. I want to be able to take a picture of my check and deposit it to my account. Um, I pushed really hard on that, worked really hard. In order for us to launch it, we had to do it separate from the main app, which sucks, right? Like that's not fun as a user, but I would much rather have the capability to, to do it and then eventually we'll integrate it. So a lot of times you might say, here's my best case scenario. I'm going to have this really robust solution. It's going to be fully integrated, seamless user experience, elegantly designed interface. I'm going to wow their socks off. But if you at least do some barbed wire and duct tape and like, hey, it works and it achieves my own goal, users will go and say like, okay, I accept that, you know, uh, this is my bank. I've been loyal. So there's like a huge switching cost. I don't want to close my account, go somewhere else, rechange all my pay payment stuff, my deposits. Okay, fine. I'll just stay here. You guys kind of annoy me, but that's okay. Um, but we'll launch this other app and we, we made you even that much happier, even though it's not the most optimal experience for you. Um, so those are some lessons and some, I'm even like going down memory lane. I forgot about some of these, uh, uh, some of these decisions we made, but building a, <laughs> building a startup now, like I joined HackerOne when we were 50 people and now we're, you know, close to 300 or so and um, very different business than banking in Central Pacific Bank, which was founded 55 years ago by Japanese Nisei Americans in a, under the trees in Alamona Park because they couldn't get credit as uh, after post World War II because of the color of their skin. It was an incredible story of this institution and it's, um, very different uh, environment to be able to uh, drive change uh, and, um, and have an innovative spirit. That's right, a big reason also why I knew I had to leave when the opportunity came up to, to do Blue Photo Stories with Hank Rogers. Uh, we didn't know it was Blue Photo Stories at the time. I knew I was just like, Hank Rogers, networking, right? Who can I go and learn from and glean from? And like, he's going to pitch me ideas and I'm going to be able to choose with three other people that are smart. And it, when, you, when you start a startup, they basically say the, the trifecta you want is business, design, and development. If you can have that three, you got the marketing side, sales and marketing, your go-to-market, you got your design, they can build the actual user interface and user experience for the software. And then a developer, someone technically can actually build the guts. Hmm, yeah, I mean, that last part you talked a little bit on the booth photo series so can you tell us a little bit about your experience and and journey really with starting blue photo series blue photo stories yeah it was um so like i mentioned you know day one basically all the other people in the cohort for us an accelerator you know like if everybody pitches uh their ideas they go through multiple vetting steps and you know uh, uh blue startups is investing they're an investor. They're taking a percent of equity and they're giving 20 grand and all of this, like, you know, this 12 week curriculum of the experience and then, and, uh, the, the mentorship and, and different discounted services and things. Um, the, um, where everybody else was essentially, Hey, we, they obviously knew what they were building and doing. We showed up, you know, day zero and like walk into Hank's office basically. And he's like, here's the three ideas. What do you guys think? Choose one. And um, that was a very unique experience because, you know, for me, walking away from, you know, the, the security of a paycheck, uh, I walked away from the bank and I'd worked myself up to uh, uh, a spot where I could have been, you know, I could have stayed there and who knows what the story, what the history would have been different. But I knew, uh, I knew I wanted to pursue kind of the, the startup life. So um, coming in, just figuring it out as you went. Like we had to kind of get the, get the basics together, you know, create an entity so that we could uh, actually get invested in and, um, and uh, subsidize. We had four of us on the team. So um, we had all the elements. We had design. Uh, we had a, a, a guy who was really good at finance. who was kind of the, the end end piece for us. Um, and then our developer. Um, we went through the, the cohort just like everyone else. And it's crazy to think back to even some of the cohort experiences and the people that uh, they were able to bring in. Uh, one guy, uh, Jeremiah Grossman, uh, he's from Maui. He started a company called, uh, well, he started various companies, but uh, the one at the time that he was known for, I think, uh, I'm blanking on the name now, uh, White Hat Security, I think, or something. Uh, been really successful. And now he's, in, he's a big name in the cybersecurity space, which now at HackerOne, I, I'm in the middle of over the last four years. Uh, crazy to think. He lives in Boise now. 
<laughs> like, it's so funny to think 10 years ago, nine, eight, nine years ago to, to go through uh, the Blue Startups experience. And again, it comes back to just, you put yourself in the room, you go through these experiences, you don't even know, you know, but you don't even know the people you've talked to in, in your experiences of, of investing in finance and, and uh, you know, my experience with, with, uh, with having your dad and like, it's crazy to just think like how um, taking that step when you have that kind of like, all right, this is going to be risky. I even got, I got engaged right after I quit my job. So I got engaged to my now wife uh, right around there. So you think of like every major life change that could happen, quit your job, start a company, get engaged. It was a crazy, crazy time in my life personally and, and obviously professionally. Um, but I have so much fun memories. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we worked hard and the startup idea didn't end up having enough legs. And the missing element, I believe, was passion. We went through the startup experience for the accelerator. We came out of it. We almost even had some investors that were going to invest. We were like, should we pursue this? Should we not? Uh, we had another... Um, another team that was like looking for a talented developer. We happened to have a guy, it was a great fit. He's like, Hey, I'm going to go work for them, be their CTO. I'm like, that's beautiful. I then ended up going and consulting for Sultan Ventures and we founded Accelerate UH and built it to, uh, uh, you know, built an accelerator and from there did other cool projects. And that's when I really started getting into marketing, uh, content marketing and, and creation, writing my own blog. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit of the blue, blue startups experience. Um, pitching our ideas in front of Dave McClure and others from 500 startups. Um, you know, they don't pull their punches, man. You got to be ready on your feet. You got to know your business inside and out, especially for me as I was a CEO and, you know, pitch guy. Uh, you're the one in the hot seat. So if you're going to take that responsibility, then uh, it's okay to say you don't know, but you also, they'll, the sharks will smell blood right away when you're getting grilled in an investor panel or, um, uh, in an audience and you have the responsibility to your co-founders and yourself to, to do the needful, to learn what you can. And for us, we knew it after four or five months or so that we're like, well, we're not going to pursue this as a, as an ongoing venture. So we, I say win our separate ways. Again, I went and worked closer with Tark Sultan at Sultan Ventures. He was part of Blue Photo Stories. Uh, Alan Soledem went and start and worked for a company at the time. It was called Happy Hour Pal and they pivoted to area metrics uh, I've actually haven't followed their story in the last couple of years, but uh, they were, they were successful in raising a decent amount of funding. They've uh, they were able to hire more of a team and, and grow and get product market fit. Um, and that's kind of a word that gets thrown, thrown around a lot in startups. And we didn't have the passion, didn't find that product market fit and had to figure out where we want to go next. And that was kind of the, the next step. Oh, cool. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with Salt and Ventures and Accelerate? Um, like what kind of companies did you guys look for and what really made those companies stand out to you? Yeah. So the Accelerate UH model is, um, you know, based off of similar accelerator models that you'd see like a Blue Startups or others, um, where Blue Startups was partially funded by government money. You know, that was um, basically through uh, HTDC, High Technology Development Corporation, and usually state funds that are in the investment sector or innovation sector rather. Um, and Accelerate UH is all focused on University of Hawaii intellectual property and talent. So, hey, there's the Office of Technology Transfer and Economic Development. There's uh, the millions and millions of dollars that UH brings in research annually, in research grant money, um, is, is pretty significant. I, I don't remember the numbers, but it was in above 500 million. And it was, you know, top third for sure nationwide because there's some very unique qualities that UH has, some very unique talent. Um, and so some world-class research going on at the university. And the idea was like, there's a lot of really strong interest in the tech. There just isn't people that understand business and, and startups. And so let's, let's kind of go through this accelerator model. Let's bring some brilliant scientists some brilliant engineers and brilliant technical people or anybody at the, um, at the university or alumni that have an idea for a startup, doesn't matter sector or type, uh, we, would, we would look at them. Um, but the, the like bread and butter was trying to figure out how do we take the millions and millions of research grant money that's coming in and the really great intellectual property that the UA, the university owns and let's commercialize it in this new, not just licensing. That's usually like an OTED or a um, license, you know, basically, oh, let's license the tech and so-and-so will go build it, build it. This was, let's try and align strong interest of equity in a, in a business with a ton of upside with, with business people. And so we wanted to, um, 
kind of focus there. Um, so that was our that was our main mission, and is to work closely at, at Accelerate UH and Accelerate Hawaii, and some of these other educational initiatives. Spun off mostly after I left, but it was still part of the initial strategy of the uh, of the group. Uh, working like let's uh, let's kind of do this, roll up our sleeves, be a startup catalyst was a term that we uh, we'd kind of coined, and and we're all about diversity and innovation. Um, that and I believe this to this day for sure. And we mentioned it a bit when we were chatting before our before our talk today, it doesn't matter where you're at in the world, you can start a company today with the technology at your fingertips. And, um, and the amount of information that's out there on YouTube and, and you know, free resources, like you can do that. In order to scale, you need to go to probably a, a tech hub. Like in order to scale a company, now maybe this is changing in the post-COVID world as well. Um, our company at HackerOne is mostly remote, but we've had a strong European presence. Two or three of our founders are Dutch. We had a San Francisco headquarters. We're distributed all around the world. My team that I oversee, we're in like three or four different time zones. Um, so you can run a business 100% remote, like GitLab or, or um, uh, remotely or Buffer or WordPress automatic. Uh, these are massive companies. Well, Buffer isn't massive, but they're growing a lot. GitLab's a billion dollar uh, valuation. Automatic's been around forever running a, a remote first model. Um, so you don't have to be in a hub is my main point. And we believe that strongly at Sultan Ventures and worked with others like Ross Baird with, uh, uh, with his capital group based in DC, um, with many others that are investing in rural and smaller areas around the country, uh, and finding those pockets of innovation. That's arbitrage opportunity as an investor, but it's just way easier to scale when you have the tech, when you have the infrastructure, when you have the talent going to a hub. Um, so with Sultan Ventures, we obviously were in Hawaii. We're not in a hub. We try to leverage the unique skill sets we have, which I would, I would throw in. Um, I don't remember if they've changed their name, but, um, uh, energy accelerator. Um, I think they might've rebranded, but, um, they had a really fascinating model leveraging the unique aspect of Hawaii, um, to do proof of concept for green energy type of initiatives. And they've had huge success getting 1% basically, uh, in exchange for big investment dollars. And Don and, and their entire team have, have really done an incredible work. And I was fortunate to work with them a bit um, with, on some projects in, the, in, their, in my time at Sultan Ventures too. So a lot of really cool stuff, man, working at Sultan Ventures. Um, Accelerate Wage was a big part of our efforts, but uh, Omar and Tarek have uh, done a lot to pour their heart and soul into the startup community uh, in Hawaii. And I applaud them for it. All the, and, and Kate as well, uh, who works closely there. Yeah, um, and then so for your job now with HackerOne, what made you want to work there and how have you grown with the company? So I joined HackerOne, I, I mentioned four years ago, it's crazy to think, four years ago I didn't even know HackerOne existed, right? Um, had no idea. And I started my contract with a company called Captricity and I did content marketing for them for about 90 days. The VP of marketing at Captricity then went to HackerOne. He gave me the call. He's like, Luke, here's the company. You should check it out. Let's go through the interview process. We're going to come with a small team. We enjoyed working together. Let's try and build something great. Um, and that was the opportunity. I was fascinated by the overall branding, by the, the idea, um, crowdsourcing security. Um, knew nothing about cybersecurity, info security, whatever you want to call it. Didn't know squat about it. So I had to just dive in, go all in. Um, and for me going all in from a marketing side, if I'm, I'm going to write and be a voice of a brand, I better darn well really have a passion for it. Cause I'm going to be spending a lot of time, mental time, figuring out who our personas are, who am I writing to? Um, how are they actually buying my products or services? Uh, where do we fit in the marketplace? How do I compare against traditional services? Cause a lot of time people don't realize this in startups. One of the biggest obstacles you will always face, especially in a newer market where we're creating a new market at HackerOne, is the status quo. Oh, no, I'm fine. Nope, that's good. It's not the other competitor that might be the upstart across the street. You're up against the status quo. So you always have to overcome that in your, in your marketing material and your presentation. It's, it's the powers of persuasion. It's, that's marketing. Like when I talk to uh, people that want to get into marketing, I, I reference um, material is actually on a bookshelf behind me. Um, the, it's a book called Influence by a guy named Robert Cialdini. Foundational. Uh, it's, it's human, human psychology and understanding how to be a good marketer, how to uh, communicate effectively to people. 
Um, so HackerOne, it just really intrigued me. I loved the brand. I loved the idea. I thought it would be a lot of fun. Uh, I, I liked the aspect that you can, I was, I wanted to go B2B SaaS. So I, I knew that before even HackerOne. So all of my, my uh, companies I was looking at were all business to business software as a service companies. I just decided I don't want to go B2C. I didn't want to have to dilute to consumer. It's a completely different approach. B2B and enterprises uh, selling to businesses much more complex and to me more fun. Uh, I found it more challenging and, and B2C can be very, very fluid. It, it, it can be like just the tastemakers and things can change quite a bit. You're moving, pivoting really quick. Uh, there's a lot of different elements and I just didn't want to do that. I was much more interested in understanding a buyer segment, knowing what my, uh, uh, what, like kind of the different people in a company that you have to, to tailor specific messages for. Who's the economic buyer? Who's this internal stakeholder and influencer? Who's my end user? I need to create material and basically uh, a presentation to, to each of those different personas. Um, and for me, I love the idea and believed right away in the future of, of hackers in our society. Hackers for good, we hack for good. Um, hackers is not a negative connotation. It's, you know, these are criminals that, are, that you might see in, in nefarious acts and, and things. This uh, hackers is a positive term. You look at a, an aerial shot of Facebook's headquarters, it says hacker way. In Silicon Valley in particular, the idea of developers and hackers is champion, it's triumph. Like that's what investors invest in is scalable results because software scales and algorithms are, are magic uh, in a way. And that's, um, for me at HackerOne, it was really kind of tapping into, we can speak to both audiences. I can have fun with some B2C because I got to speak to hackers and make sure if, if they don't have a good experience, if they don't like HackerOne, if they don't like what I would be presenting from the corporate side to try and convince this, you know, CISO or the security team lead to buy my product or service, um, I can't alienate them. I would always define for my writing staff, and I've moved on from the content marketing uh, unit and, uh, at HackerOne to build the community uh, side of the house. But I'd always tell them the meta unit, the meta persona we speak to is the hacker. Because the CISO, the chief information security officer, he's either a hacker at heart or he was a 17-year-old kid at some point. And maybe he got in trouble from his high school for hacking. Or he has a desire to be like them. Security teams want to know who are these hackers that might be support, submitting bugs to me? Who, are, who would I be working with? What is, what is their skills and credibility? Uh, top hackers want to know more about, guess what? The top hackers. How are they finding bugs? Who are they? Like... What's, how do they solve this problem? And then the up and coming hackers want to know more about the top hackers. They glorify them. They, they celebrate them. They, they look up to them. They want to be them at these live hacking events they throw. They want to see, they see how much money people can make doing bug running. We've had eight millionaire hackers in HackerOne. We're, you see numbers behind me on the screen right here. We're at 97, hey, 98.3 million today in bounties paid to hackers in the last six years. Uh, we're going to hit the 100 million mark in the next couple of weeks. That blows my mind. When I joined, buddy, it was like 12 million three and a half years ago. So, um, yeah, never looked back at HackerOne. Very passionate to work really closely with the hackers and kind of fell into that role. And happy to talk a bit about that transition and growth for like, what have I learned? How have I grown with the company? I think that was the second part of your question. Um, when I started the content marketing unit, it was four of us on the leadership or on the team, marketing team total. And, uh, when you do that, you're primarily an individual contributor because you're not managing people, you're not building a team yet. You have to just crush it in your day job. You have to do the needful, roll up your sleeves. And that's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy that part of startups. So this is the later, most later stage company that I've been a part of in, in some time. Like a work that I mentioned at Sultan Ventures and Accelerate UH, very, very early stage, like infant, like, you know, very early. Um, Hacker One, you know, we're, we're up to 300 employees distributed, very different company than I joined two and a half years ago. Uh, I would say about every 18 months with high growth startups, probably that, that speed might get even shorter. The company changes a lot. Cult, like you got to keep a really strong culture. You need to have strong values, which was also attracting me to HackerOne initially. Um, but you got to also roll with the punches and, and figure out, hey, it's not like it's the four people anymore. We got 30 people on this team. Things are different. Processes going to need to happen more. There's going to be need to be more bureaucracy. We've got to document changes differently. We have to communicate and work across different, uh, you know, departments internally to be effective. Um, so the growth for me has really been a, a marketed growth from, I mentioned, individual contributor at the very beginning, 
when I'm the one writing all the social media posts, I'm the one writing the blogs, I'm, I'm ideating our content calendar. I'm the one going to live hacking events, doing social posts, talking to people. I used to, I kicked off a daily newsletter called Zero Daily. Um, and um, so I was writing all the time. Um, over time, it changes less to how do I actually bring up someone? So I had to train someone on the social side, had a ton of skills. She's doing better than I, I ever did. That's, and that's so much joy to be able to see when you're able to bring in someone that kind of can take your ball from you and run with it and you're able to focus on other things. So that's been a big kind of um, transition over the last uh, several years and specifically the last year for me personally because when I got uh, promoted to the senior director position, I overtook the community aspect, which was kind of, wasn't really even a department at the time. We were able to consolidate it, figure out how this can be a strategic business unit at the company and really drive um, success for the business from the crowdsource. Like if without hackers, we don't exist. HackerOne does not exist. Just like with Uber and drivers, drivers stop riding or driving. Riders can sit there all day and pull up the app and nothing's going to happen. So we are a marketplace and we, um, we have to be able to communicate to our hackers as effectively as you do to our customers. And it's the network effect of startups. So I mentioned this 100 million mark, which I'm, I'm ecstatic about. That happens because you get some of the biggest bug bounty programs that come on and pay top dollar, which attract the top hackers and they want to be able to make money, which the more hackers than new customers come and see, oh, HackerOne's got the best network of, of talent. They're the largest. It's a crowdsource model. They've got this proof points. These other customers use them. I'm going to go. Then they bring in more customers. That, like, that's the beauty of network business. And that's why Bill Gurley from uh, Benchmark is a huge believer in marketplace models and was one of the early investors and is still on our board today at HackerOne. Um, so that's, that's a, a bit, I, I'll kind of pause there, but that's, uh, that's a bit about my journey at HackerOne starting in the marketing space, specifically at content marketing and B2B, understanding very specifically at the beginning that you wouldn't, like if we ever alienate our hackers, if we ever demean them or anything, then that's, that's not gonna get us anywhere. Uh, I was passionate about the people, just fell into the role and community uh, and that was the new opportunity. Every 18 months or so, you're probably going to need a new challenge. At least for me, someone that's wired like me, you're going to need that next thing. For me, that next thing was really understanding the community side of the house, um, building a team. We got six people on, on the team now. Um, we got, you know, half a dozen or a dozen other moderators that moderate 18,000 individuals in our Discord group. Um, we have 100,000 followers on Twitter, like that's handled by a different person that manages those conversations. So. Um, that's really been the most exciting part is investing in the hackers and investing in the team and um, challenging yourself as a leader as I've gone through the different steps. Yeah, awesome. And then again, you touched on that, that really important piece of networking and how important uh, community building is. Um, but other than, or even including networking, what do you feel are the top three most important skills that you use on your job? And like, what is the mm -hmm. best way to start and to learn and develop those skills? Good question. Top three skills. I'll, I'll answer it by actually saying here's two and then I'll dive into that. I wrote a blog post a while back about um, kind of meta skills. And to me, it was uh, writing and interviewing. So I felt, especially as a writer and communicator, there's a lot that goes into writing well. And Mark Twain has a quote. He's like, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. It's really difficult to actually consolidate things down into, into really brief consolidated um, areas. So for me, learning to write was a core skill because in, in business, in, in, when I say writing, it's like I write more emails than I do anything else these days. When I started my career in underwriting, I had to actually position, I still have some of these write-ups uh, about... Uh, how to position your argument. We had something called the core argument, which was although recommend because. Here's my executive summary, and although these are the negative things, I recommend that we move forward with the loan because this, and here's, my, here's the guts of what I'm, what I'm arguing. There's other frameworks called Raytech. Um, what are you trying to say? Uh, I forget all the, the ones. You can look, you can Google the Raytech, W-A-R-I-T-E-C. I was a college professor that, that pulled that one up. That's just kind of like a structure of an argument. That's really core. Being able to, to communicate, writing, understanding your audience. Um, there's a lot of nuance in, in even internal politics, but also especially in a community or customer service space, 
you're dealing with a lot of people that might be upset at you. Like they had a bad experience. They had a negative outcome. You got to be able to kind of have the empathy to position it in a way that maybe you can win them over to a, a champion and a, and a fan of your brand. And they'll, they'll be your most like adv strongest advocates if you can turn them around. That's a huge opportunity. If you have, I always love the quote, I'd rather cool down a fanatic than warm up a corpse. So if you have people that are fanatical about you, that was another thing for HackerOne as a brand. We were polarizing. There were people that really didn't like us. There were a lot of people loved us, tattooed their, our logos. Um, you know, we would go to do events and they would grab our swag. And then I see weeks later on the Instagram of, of model taking it in a photo shoot because they just loved HackerOne brand. They thought it was cool. Um, and um, so writing, going back to that writing, I would say for me personally, and interviewing, learning to ask good questions. Uh, you've come up with a good list of questions. In order to ask good questions, you have to do some research, as you know. You got to go back in and understand elements of uh, improving your questions each and every uh, time that you do these interviews. I would put that as you will always be well served if you can ask good questions because it elicits something that no one else can understand at that moment, at that time. You asked this question in this way and you understood the audience of who you were talking to as well as what they might need and you're able to pull that out of people. That's incredibly valuable. Like you can see when someone's doing an interview, um, you know, and Oprah is a brilliant interviewer, like in these people that have just honed their skill to, to excellence. Talk about the 10,000 10, hour mark, got kind of Malcolm Gladwell that wrote The Tipping Point, talks about spending 10,000 hours to become excellent something. Um, you gotta invest the time always. So skills that I always, um, for me personally, that I kind of put up there on the top of my list is, is being a good writer and, uh, and, and an interviewer, asking good questions. And I say interviewing, not in always this kind of format, but if you can ask the right questions within a business meeting, if I can ask the right questions when I'm talking to hackers, um, understand a little bit more about them, nuance, phrase it in the right way, have my body language. Like there's a lot you can learn there. And um, in, in board meetings, I've presented to our board at HackerOne a couple of times and like, you understand the different people, how you make eye contact, what this person cares about, what this person doesn't care about, what we just talked about before, what might be the lay of the land today. Talking and, and communicating with people in the realm of COVID-19, if you don't have some sort of empathy and understanding of what the pandemic might be happening to other people, then you're disingenuous. You're not doing your work. It's, it's costly. You should not do that. That's not, uh, that's not good. In the role at HackerOne from content marketing to community building, um, trying to think about a really boiled down skill. When I think of the strategic areas to understand, um, anything psychology related, human psychology, particularly from a marketing aspect. Uh, that book Influence I referenced, uh, there's many others like it. Uh, Passion, uh, Hooked is another one guy by name, Near Ayal, uh, talks about building habit forming products. If you can understand human psychology at a really intimate level and how they actually engage with products and services, there's a, a blog, a guy, Eugene Way, wrote a blog called um, uh, status as a service, basically analyzing social networks, how they've been insanely successful, why they've been successful, how they've defined this kind of social space, uh, some of the innovations that have happened there, um, and how it's just straight, like he has a, a phrase that we're all status-seeking monkeys. Like um, in the realm of the products and tools that we use, and for me, like overseeing our community, we have leaderboards, right? We have areas where we're championing and triumphing, like congratulations, you've done this the security work, you've been recognized by these companies, you're, you're seen on this leaderboard, here's this badge you get. Like getting someone that kind of ego enhancement and the opportunity to just showcase their skills on a public dashboard for their profile, maybe give them a new call when they hit a certain mark. And you see this in video games all the time, right? Hey, I unlocked a certain like cool, like new sword because I achieved this level. I unlocked this new profile thing, I, whatever. There's hundreds of different ways you can slice and dice it. That's relatively cheap rather than saying, hey, you achieve this and I'm going to give you a $100 gift card. That's like not long-term success. That's actually, you can understand your own community in a way that what, what incentivizes them, what, um, what's my unique sauce, what's my unique message, what's my differentiators. I mean, how many video games are out there today that um, you, know, you can spend your time with? They're all looking for that attention. For me as a business, I want to say like, what do our hackers want? What do they need? So if I ask the right questions, we do these things called hacker NPS surveys. So the net promoter scores, how like basically the net promoter score in the simplest form is on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend HackerOne to your friend? And if it's nine or 10, you're a promoter. If it's anything below that, you're either a detractor or you're passive. So word of mouth is one of the key things as a marketer. 
how do you get word of mouth? Because that's essentially free marketing. You talk about really understanding marketing, especially in a B2B SaaS world, most of it's actually metrics driven. There's tons of data that's out there. You can benchmark yourself against how many email open rates do we get? What's the click-through rate? What's the actual, like, how many meetings and opportunities have I got for my sales team? How many of those closed? What's the average sales price? How long does it take for them to close? And you operate the math out. You don't have to be a math whiz, but you got to understand the basics of arithmetic and communicate in that way. Okay, if we are able to improve our deal size and opportunity size by 20%, we're going to hit our number by the end of the year. Okay, if I'm actually converting the MQLs at a 25% rate, and I was able to juice that up with quality meetings and MQLs, maybe I don't need more, more unqualified like these MQL leads. I need to actually just try and drive quality through the pipeline because that's going to yield better results. Um, so those are a couple of elements. Writing, ask good questions, understand human psychology, and have a good grasp on the data. Awesome. I mean, yeah. Awesome. Um, and then just combining two questions, um, what does a typical day look like for you? And can you walk us through what you feel is the typical path for someone that wants to get into marketing? Sure. So day in the life, I guess. It uh, depends on the day. Um, right now, every day I update my $100 million countdown. So I pull up my stats. I get my regular reports. I see how many hackers got paid over $10,000 yesterday. Shoot them in an email. Congratulations. Um, check in with, uh, I was, when I do my one-on-ones with a team, I ask three questions. How are you? How's the business? And how's the team? And for me in day-to-day, that's what I want to try and check up. How's the team doing? Anything, team broadly as a company, how's the hackers doing? What's the community up to? What's social look like? Anything new news-wise, like blogs or social that's, that's out there, do, do that reading, do your email check. Uh, I do a lot of meetings. So in this kind of day and age of, of being a senior director at a company, then you know, I'm interfacing a lot with new product launches. And so today, for an example, like we're launching a cool new product called Hack One Pentest. Um, instead of the bug bounty realm where it's pay for effort, like if buddy, you go and hack on Hacker One, you find a bug and it says, hey, if you find this critical issue, we're going to pay you $20,000. It's like, whoa, that's amazing. Uh, if you find it, you get 20 grand. If you spend 200 hours, you don't find anything. Sorry, you don't get to 20 grand. You don't actually get paid for your effort. You're just paying for the potential for a huge payout or you're, you're investing your time. Uh, pay for effort work can be like, we'll pay you a couple grand, two, $3,000 to do this very specific scoped work. Uh, and that's exciting for me because where this number is getting huge and the bounties that we do, that's what HackOne is known for. Uh, but it excites me to be able to provide opportunity, financial opportunity for our community. That stability, that kind of backstop to be able to say, I know I can do bug bounty really well, but I'm going to do these several pen test engagements with HackerOne, develop my own resume, develop my experience even more get a stable income that can fund my additional research to pop the huge critical bug on this amazing, amazing uh, attack, what we call attack surface or scope. Um, and so that's uh, one element today, like sitting with the internal team, working with product heavily, trying to survey and interview. So I spent a lot of time today analyzing our most recent hacker NPS data. So what are the, what, how do we segment the audience? What are they saying that we're doing well? What are they saying we need to improve on? Then working with product to say, hey, you're an internal stakeholder here. Here's the data. So as a community team, I believe a strong part of my focus is to be a conduit from the users to the product people that are building the experiences for them. So how much can I provide high fidelity feedback on a regular interval to them at scale with enough diversity and representative sample size of my community? That's the Hacker NPS survey in a high fidelity way. We launched something called Hacker Advisory Board. So we're getting top hackers to be able to say, and customer advisory boards are very common. So you go to typical major startups or, or companies where they like, hey, you're one of our best customers. We want to give you unique access to beta features. We want to give you an opportunity to influence your, your roadmap of the products and features that we're going to build for you and people like you. Same thing on the hacker side. So a lot of what we do is we want to be a pass-through uh, and say, here's what this community says, not what Luke says. Here's what these thousands of hackers have said, and here's the data. Uh, so that's a big part of day, day in, day out working on new products and features with product and engineering and, and what we call customer success at HackerOne. They're the ones that interface mostly with the community. So we also oversee when things don't go as well, we kind of mediate a situation. So I have a support part of the business that we oversee. Uh, we do these things called live hacking events, which are inc incredibly exciting. So we provide awesome experiences for them, pay them millions of dollars, uh, fly them to cities around the world, or in this case, do virtual experiences. Um, and uh, we just did one in uh, last month or so. 
So that's a little bit, it kind of varies quite a bit. That's part of what I enjoy about the work that it actually can be quite variable. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how do we support, um, provide financial opportunity and provide education. So we have something called Hacker 101, which is a whole series of labs and, and educational videos about how you can become a hacker, how you can um, make thousands of dollars, maybe even millions over time doing the work on Hacker One to help make the internet safer together. That's Hacker One's mission, make the internet safer together. We have a phrase called together we hit harder, which is all about crowdsourcing, coming together to be able to solve solutions. We're better when we come as a unit rather than individually. So that's a day in the life. And then what was the first question more about um, becoming a marketer? Yeah, what would be the typical path of somebody that wants to go into marketing? I love that, I love that you said typical, buddy, because my experience, I'd say, has been nothing, nothing too typical about it. Um, I did, like I said, I fell into it. So uh, for me, if I was to look back and provide myself advice 10 years ago even, um, I, I've always been envious of the people that knew I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be this because you get such a head start. If you can build the, you know, your kind of path that way for 10, you know, 10 years earlier, if I would have started and really knew I was going to be a content marketer and do other things, um, then I would have, you know, probably moved to Silicon Valley a lot earlier, worked for more startups. I'm a big believer in just jumping in and learning on the job. Um, I would not recommend you need to go get your master's in, in anything. My master's was going through the financial crisis as an underwriter at Central Pacific Bank. Like, honestly, that was kind of, and I got paid for it rather than paying thousands of dollars coming out of debt for it. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say school is the right, right thing. Um, get involved in the clubs, things that you're doing, all your passions. Uh, you'll find your way. Um, especially for marketing, read the books, invest in guys like Noah Kagan. Um, who's a brilliant marketer, um, in, in today's day, uh, Ryan holiday is also really well. Um, Seth Godin, uh, Robert Cialdini. Um, there's a, I'm trying to, there's another, uh, another name that came to mind, but those are some really good, like just learn and do it. Like, you, you learn way better by actually doing projects, by investing. Um, and I think, I think it was Adam Grant, a guy from Wharton, who, um, you know, Kukua.org and some of the work we've done with your, with your dad and, and the brilliant individuals there. It's um, people see your best when you're doing good things for others. When you're, when you're investing in, in early on in your career into the relationships, not for the sake of getting something in return, just because it's the right thing to do, because you care, because you're passionate about this thing. Uh, don't make the money and then come back and pay it back. Do it while you're building your own career and you will be rewarded for it. I've been a product of that personally. Um, to be a marketer, especially in today's day and age, I don't know what they would be able to tell you in school that's going to give you the roadmap. I would say don't not go to get, don't go get your undergraduate degree, do the extracurricular activities, start your own companies, read these books I'm referencing, go online and see other people I don't even know, share them with me because I'd love to be able to learn from them too. Um, and just hustle. That's my advice. Yeah, awesome. And then in your eyes, what makes a marketer really stand out? You know, what makes them, um, when they do something, seem really special and unique? I think creativity, but you have to do it with... Um, the financial model has to make sense when, well, you know, people can come up with really fun, um, glitzy marketing ideas. Like that's the fun part of the job. You can get in and do that. But if it doesn't make sense for that business, if it doesn't make sense for you and you don't have the team to execute, um, if you can have an idea, believe it makes a pitch, the idea, communicate it, put together a project team, have the budget and go execute and then show results, show the data. Don't just say, oh, look at what we did, all these great glorified, like, you know, things, especially in the B2B SaaS realm, you have to show that at the end of the day, it drove this amount of, you know what your metrics that matter are. It drove this many marketing qualified leads, which resulted in this number of meetings, which resulted in this number of pipeline, which resulted in these new logo customers. If you can show proof points of those elements or anything along that spectrum based on your funnel, you will be successful. And for me, what's been successful in those areas is the creative, um, creative aspects to have new ideas and to execute them. Like it's just that, that hybrid is really going to make you stand out from not just the ones that can get up there and pontificate, but results before rhetoric, 
And, um, and if you can have a project management capability, well, you might not have the really detailed, I'm not super detailed on the analytics, but that's what you have a good team for. Our operations team on HackOne are phenomenal. They put together from your, from your Marketos to your, to your sales forces, the entire funnel of all of your data, all the bells and whistles around there, though there's dozens of cool marketing MarTech stuff that help you be more efficient, that help you do things and see into things and, and document the entire funnel. Like it's super fascinating. So whatever you do in today's day and age, it has to boil back to real numbers. But the ones that are going to go above the crowd, creativity. And then the other thing I would say actually on top of this, consistency. If you can say consistently, I do a daily newsletter. We write this kind of blog every month. We do these webinars every second Thursday. That, that shows that you've got enough foresight and that you can then communicate, hey, every Tuesday at 10 p.m., we launch this or whatever. Yeah, awesome. Um, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing your knowledge and experiences yeah. on today's uh, Virtual Student Experiences webinar. Um, we're right at our 11 o'clock mark. Um, so, yeah, for everyone else, if you'd like to be notified about future VSC webinars, please email us at virtualstudentexperiences at gmail.com. Um, yeah, then again, Mr. Tucker, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to talk with us. Thank you.